Helo a chroeso i bodlediad yr Academy Genedlaethol ar gyfer arweinyddiaeth a ddysgol yng Nghymru. Podlediad sy'n rhannu materion ac arferion arweinyddiaeth allweddol ar draws y sector addysg yma yng Nghymru ac yn rhyngwladol. Hello and welcome to the podcast from the National Academy for Educational Leadership in Wales, a podcast that shares key leadership issues and practices across the education sector here in Wales and internationally. I'm Kirsty Payne, Head of Operations at the National Academy for Educational Leadership. This episode features Steve Mumby, Visiting Professor at University College London and author of Imperfect Leadership. Steve is a self-employed consultant and speaker on leadership and system reform, working with governments and with groups of schools around the world. He has spent his whole career in education, commencing as a secondary school teacher in Birmingham. This podcast is part of Series 3 of the Leadership Unlocked webinars. Thank you. Uh, It's great to be involved with you today. Um, I'm passionate about leadership and leadership development, and therefore I'm a big supporter of what the National Academy for Education Leadership is doing here in Wales. I've been involved from the very early days uh, of when it was being set up, and I'm keen for it to continue to go from strength to strength in the important work that Tegwin and her colleagues are doing. Now, as you probably know, I've done quite a lot of work in Wales over the past few years, and I'm aware of some of the issues and challenges that you face, and also some of the great things that are happening uh, in your country. I'm not a researcher and I'm not an academic, but I have led large education organisations for 17 years. I was a director of education in a local authority in England, in Merseyside, called Knowsley. I was then chief executive of the England version of the National Academy for Education Leadership, which is the National College for School Leadership. I was there for eight years. And then I was for five years chief executive of Education Development Trust, which is an international Uh, charity working all over the world. Um, And as a leader, I've had to deal with some pretty challenging situations in my time. I've had to deal with gangsters carrying guns. I've had to deal with terrorist attacks on members of staff. I've had to deal with um, wholesale redundancies and the aftermath of the murder of children. But I've never come anything near experiencing what school leaders have had to experience in the past nine months or so during this pandemic. It's completely unprecedented. I saw this on Twitter a little while ago, if I can get the slides to work. My leadership development program never prepared me for this. Well, uh, no leadership development program could possibly prepare school leaders for leading in a pandemic. You're in uncharted territory. You're having to deal with things even the most experienced leaders have never had to deal with before. There's no manual to fall back on. I think one of the most fundamental challenges for school leaders is that safeguarding, not placing children or indeed staff in harm's way, is at the very heart of what we are about as leaders in schools. But the impact of COVID-19 virus means that you're having to make decisions that might do harm, either physical harm or mental harm, to children or to staff. And that's a very stressful situation to be in. And many school leaders haven't had much of a break since March last year. And you're trying to respond to things that are out of your control. I've been hugely impressed by the commitment of school leaders, and not just their commitment, 
but by their expertise and professionalism in Wales during this really challenging time. But there are some general principles about leadership in times of crisis and uncertainty that I want to talk about today. And in doing so, I'm going to draw on a book I wrote uh, a year ago, and the book was called Imperfect Leadership, a book for leaders who know they don't know it all. Now, that's a strange title for a book. Why call a book Imperfect Leadership? Well, I called it that was because it's the best term I can think of to describe my own leadership. And that's not something I'm ashamed of or embarrassed by. I'm actually proud to be an imperfect leader. Because I have a problem with this idea of perfect leadership. I think if we think we should be perfect as leaders, we'll end up making ourselves physically or mentally ill. We'll do our heads in. If we think we have to be perfect as leaders, we won't delegate responsibility to others. We'll think we should do it all ourselves. And if we think we have to be perfect as leaders, we won't encourage others to step up into leadership because they have to be perfect too. So I, I think we should be speaking really positively and celebrating the fact that we are imperfect leaders. And anyway, um, being imperfect is just far more interesting than, and more real than being perfect. Uh, who would be interested in their tower at Pisa if it wasn't leaning? Imperfection is what makes things interesting. And I think in terms of leadership in a crisis, the worst kind of leadership in a crisis is a belief in your own infallibility, that you don't need any help and that you know all the answers. So uh, in the book, I talk about 10 aspects of imperfect leadership. I talk about that imperfect leaders are aware of their strengths and weaknesses and their changing context. They show up and they walk into the wind, but they sometimes make mistakes and they might need some help to get back up again. They value their teams and empower them because they know that they don't know it all. They ask for help from others and are invitational. They demonstrate not just power in their leadership, but love in their leadership because they know that everyone else is imperfect too. They make public promises on the most important things they want to achieve because they're worried that if they don't make the public promise, they mightn't do the things that matter the most. They acknowledge their mistakes and they manage their ego. They learn from their mistakes they encourage others to step up into leadership because nobody is the finished product. And they try to be authentic and honest and try to do the right thing. Now, I'm not going to speak about all these principles today. I'm going to focus on leadership in times of uncertainty. Uh, I'm going to pick up some of these issues as I apply it to leadership in times of crisis. So the first issue I want to principle I want to talk about, about leadership in times of crisis is show up and walk into the wind. Now, colleagues, the idea of showing up at a time of crisis would seem pretty obvious. But actually, there are countless examples of leaders who failed to show up in times of crisis. I was spoiled for choice to give you some examples, but I'm just going to give you two. The first one is George Bush in uh, 2005, Hurricane Katrina. Um, the southeastern coast of the USA was devastated. More than a thousand people lost their lives. Large parts of New Orleans had to be rebuilt. But George Bush, the president of the USA, flew from his home in, in Texas. He flew over the site of the devastation. He could look down and see it. But he carried on to Washington and to the White House. And that's where he stayed for a while. And some people say this failure to turn up at Hurricane Katrina's uh, devastation, uh, he never recovered his, his, his credibility as a leader. 
The second example, further a long time ago now, is the Aberfan disaster in 1966 in Wales, where the tragedy of 109 children killed and five teachers were in a slag heap and go to school. And the Queen felt she would be in the way, that she'd be a distraction, and others were more equipped to deal with it than her, so she stayed away. And it was eight days before she showed up at the scene of the disaster. And many years later, she said that in 2002, that not going straight away to Aberfan was probably the biggest regret of her reign. So colleagues, we show up. In times of real crisis, we don't delegate unless we're actually too ill to be there in person or it's physically impossible for us to be there in person. We don't hide away doing strategic planning, knowing that our team has got it all under control. Our team may well have it under control. That's not the point. In times of crisis, it's important that the leader shows up, the person in charge, the boss, to be there, to empathise, to connect, to show how important this moment is. Now, I've never had to deal with those kind of crises, but I'm going to give you one example from my own leadership. Many years ago, I was director of education in Nosley, in Merseyside. I got a phone call from a high school principal, from a secondary school principal. He said, I'm phoning you because I'm frightened for my life. And I said, what's happened? He said, well, I've just yesterday, I, I temporarily excluded a child. And I brought the father in today to talk to him about why we were excluding his child uh, and what needed to happen next. And the father said to me, you won't exclude my child. So I was explaining to him why I was doing it. And the father said to me, no, you misunderstand me. I'm not going to let you exclude my child. And if you do, I'll do you harm. Ask the police about me. So after the, the head told me, after the father had left, he rang the police. And the police said, ah, he's a gangster and a killer. We can't protect you. And that's why I'm ringing you. So uh, uh, there's a few things I could have done when I got that call. I could have um, phoned the police myself. I could have sent in a school improvement officer to the school. But actually, I said, I'll be there in 20 minutes. I got in my car. I drove straight to the school. I went to the head office and I said, from now on, you're not dealing with this on your own. We're going to deal with this together. Anyway, we got we got uh, security for the school and for his home. We, we held the, the exclusion hearing outside the school and it all got sorted. But many years later, I was at a concert in Manchester and I just accidentally bumped into this uh, head teacher. And he said to me, I will never, ever forget that when I was really frightened, you showed up. So colleagues, showing up at times of fear and uncertainty is crucial for us as leaders. But we don't just show up, we walk into the wind. And you see, leadership can sometimes be extraordinarily hard. And for many school leaders, this pandemic is one of those extraordinarily hard times. Anybody else feel like leading through the COVID area is like running an ultramarathon? One where you don't know your way around the course, direction changes often, random obstacles appear out of nowhere, rules change frequently, and you have no idea when the finish line will appear. I think... The experience of most school leaders at the moment in Wales is a bit like that. But walking into the wind is when you know it's going to be tough. Your stomach is churning. You want to run away. You'd rather stay into the duvet that morning. 
but you choose to do the right thing and you choose to walk into the wind, even though you know it's going to be difficult. You might be worried that children are going to be worried. You might be worried that staff are going to be stressed. You might be worried that parents won't be happy. You might be worried that the decisions you're taking will necessarily be the right ones. But you choose to walk into the wind. If you come across as a quivering wreck, we're not going to serve our team well or our community well. So my first set of questions is this. What have been the most challenging aspects so far for our leadership during the pandemic? And have there been any key moments where on reflection, you should have been more personally involved rather than delegating? Interesting question to ask. And what coping strategies are we using to enable us to show up and walk into the wind? I'm not going to allow this time to to respond to that yet, but there will be some time later on. So principle two is adapt your leadership to your new context. Again, this seems pretty obvious, but actually it's hard. As we develop as leaders, we develop our own leadership style, uh, which is based on our beliefs and values, our expertise and skills, and our personality. But context matters, so our leadership style has to change as our context changes. Now, there are lots of good things about being an experienced leader compared to being a novice leader. When you're an experienced leader, you can draw on your previous experience and knowledge. You have kind of a mental map of what's likely to work or what's likely to not work and how to deal with this situation and how to deal with that situation. All of that is good. That's how we acquire wisdom as leaders, how we become better leaders. But we can get a bit stuck in our ways. We can form habits that have worked for us in the past that we just do instinctively, which is fine. Until we find ourselves in a different context when those habits aren't necessarily the right ones. Leaders like teachers can form habits and develop ways of behaving that have served them well in the past, that become instinctive. But that makes it harder for leaders to change in the future. Now, clearly, if we move into a new job in a different organisation, then it's clear that our context has changed. And most leaders get that. So they have to think their way into their new role, into their new organisation, uh, and do a lot of listening uh, and adjusting their leadership in the light of the new context that they find themselves in. But actually, context is more subtle than that. You can find yourself in exactly the same job, in the same organisation, but you found that your context has changed and that a different kind of leadership is now needed of you. And that's the tough stuff uh, about leadership. I don't know whether you've seen this diagram before. I've used it in the past. Sigmod Curve from Charles Handy from many years ago. It says that organizations tend to improve and grow, then they reach maturity and then they tend to decline. That's a natural order of things. But if you as the leader spot that you're near the top of that curve and then change things, you can get an inflection point and more improvement. If you wait till you're coming down from the curve down the other side, you can still change things, but it's more painful. Now, at least twice in my leadership, I've got this wrong. I've been leading in the way I'd been leading before and it had been successful in the past and I failed to spot that the external context was changing so much 
that I needed to change with it and shift how I was leading my organization. So in terms of reflection, um, it's clear that the vast majority of you are trying to cope with everything that's coming at you at the moment. And it's not a big time for, for stepping back because it's urgent and it's, it's, uh, it's full on. And it's clear that your work is changing because of the pandemic. But my question is this, it's not just the work that changes, is the leadership changing as well as the work? Are you adapting your leadership to meet the needs of your new context? So how is our new context changing not just what we do, but how we lead? What else might need to change in our ways of working in order to make sure that our leadership meets the needs of our new context? Not just now, of course, but you might be thinking about how I'm going to lead when the pandemic is over. Okay, principle three, ask for help internally and externally. Be an invitational leader. Um, it, it, being an invitational leader, being the kind of leader who asks for help is something that I've been all my life. Um, and actually, it turns out to be a really great strategy. And there are four reasons why it's such a good thing to do as a leader to ask for help and be invitational. The first reason why it's so good, it leads <coughs> decisions. So if you are, um, if you're trying to lead and you ask for advice from, from external people who know what they're doing, you're more likely to make the right decision. Um, so let me give you, let me show you a photograph. This is where I used to work in Nosley, Merseyside. And that was a picture of my office. Uh, and I had a view from my office, from, from one of those windows, of McDonald's in a car park. And I was there for five years. It was a, it was a really great job. It was a challenging job. I loved it. But um, I went straight from that job in that context, responsible for 80 schools in Osley, to being chief executive of the National College for School Leadership. I don't know whether any of you ever went to the headquarters of the NCSL in England, but it was very posh. That's a picture of it there. It had a lake and a moat. It had swans and the occasional heron. It had a hundred ensuite bedrooms, a posh restaurant and a bar. That's a photograph of the bar. And when I got the job, I was told that one of my roles was to advise the Secretary of State for Education, the Minister for Education, on school leadership. Well, I'd never even met the Secretary of State before, never mind advising on school leadership. So I was completely out of my depth. And so when you find yourself in a situation where it's beyond your, you, you don't know enough about what to do, you're out of your depth, asking for help is essential. So just to quickly mention, I've got four mentors at the time. I've got myself, Estelle Morris, who was the former Secretary of State. She helped me to understand how government worked, how ministers thought, how officials operated, how decisions were taken. That was invaluable to me because I'd never worked at national level before. I got, I got Tim Brighouse, who was the London Commissioner, who was a great strategist. And I needed to tap into his expertise on strategy. And also a great, great moral purpose command, full of strong values. And I wanted to make sure I didn't lose my values. So he was fabulous in helping me to do that. The third uh, expert I got was a guy called Tony McKay. And Tony was the best networker I knew. And I knew if I was going to be successful in this new role, I had to meet a lot of key people and get them on side. And Tony was the person who could introduce me to these people. 
And the fourth and final mentor I had was a guy called David Aubrey, because David had written the government commissioned report about the National College six months earlier. And that report had been quite critical. So I thought that he knew what the problems were. He could help me to sort them out. Now, what I'm saying here is asking for help. Asking, having mentors or coaches is really, really important. Why would any leader not want mentors? Why would you think you can, you can do a job as a leader without getting uh, help, without having mentors? Secondly, why only one? Because I've always had three or four. If you have three or four, you can get a wider range of expertise. You can get more help. Thirdly, why don't, don't have them foisted on you. Choose your mentors because you choose people who have expertise you know you haven't got. And finally, the longer you're in the role, the more you need help, not less. The more you need external mentors, not less. Because I get too close to the job and I need someone from outside the organisation to challenge me and help me to think. So asking for help leads to better decisions. I don't know whether you saw this quote from Jurgen Klopp, the Liverpool manager, uh, last March, uh, when they were playing a football match just before the lockdown. He said, I'm a football manager, not an epidemiologist. Ask me about football and management. Ask the epidemiologist about coronavirus. See, he knew he wasn't an expert in epidemiology. Where compare that to when Donald Trump was asked and he started talking about ingesting disinfectant into the into your body to, to sort out the virus. Now, one leader, Jurgen Klopp, understands what he's an expert in and what he's not an expert in. And the other one, Donald Trump, thinks he's an expert in everything. And of course, we have to be able to deal with parents' queries. I get that. But we have to understand that we don't know everything. When we don't know, we say we don't know and we find out and we ask for help from experts. So my second, so the, so the first reason we should, we should ask for help, really important this is, you just end up making better decisions. But the second reason it works is that asking for help builds collective ownership. I'm not gonna I'm clear that this is the kind of direction we have to go in, but I need your help, colleagues, to work this through, then I think you're going to build up a sense of collective responsibility as a result. I need, I need your creative ideas. I need you to help to solve the problems to remove some of the barriers. And that builds a sense of collective responsibility rather than just, uh, I know it all, you just do it. An invitation approach builds collective ownership. You're having to shape it so then you have more responsibility and ownership of it. The third reason why asking for help is such a good idea is it builds trust amongst the team and encourages others to ask for help too. This is a really important one. See, Patrick Lencioni in his book about the five dysfunctions of a team um, talks about trust being at the heart of good leadership in terms of teams. He says, if there's an absence of trust, there's a lack of openness. If there's a lack of openness, there's a fear of conflict. If there's a fear of conflict, they get artificial harmony, which leads to lack of commitment, ambiguity and vagueness, avoidance of accountability, low standards, inattention to results. And in the end, it's all about me rather than the team. So trust is at the heart of things. And what Lencioni says, if you want a team that trusts each other, you'll see these kind of behaviours. The teams who trust each other admit their weaknesses and mistakes, ask for help, 
accept questions and challenge about their areas of responsibility, take risks in offering feedback and assistance, appreciate and tap into others' skills, and offer and accept apologies. Now, this is my question. If those are the behaviours we want in a trusting team, how can we possibly expect it to happen unless we model it ourselves as leaders? Unless we, as the, as the leader of our team, ask for help, admit weaknesses and mistakes, welcome challenge. And then we're more likely to see it happen in our team. Now, I think there's a, a very, very important here is thing is, um, if we, if we ask for help ourselves, our colleagues in our team are more likely to ask for help as well. Now, many years ago, uh, we had to do, when I was in a local authority, uh, as a director of education, we had a responsibility at the time to produce an education development plan. Now, this was a very high stakes plan. It had to be submitted to the Department for Education and Government. And it was marked and assessed by government. And if it was scored highly, you got all the resources you need to implement it. If it wasn't scored highly, you got a lot of monitoring, a lot of challenge, you didn't get as much resource, and sometimes you could lose your job. So it was high stakes. And I produced, a, we had to produce a report a plan every three years. And in my previous authority, I'd be the one who'd written one of the, the best plans uh, at the time in the country. So when I went to Nosley as director, I delegated responsibility to a colleague to, draw, to write that plan for the department. It went disastrously wrong. It went disastrously wrong because, this is important, I came across as too much of an expert. I gave this colleague a copy of the plan I'd done and said, this is a good base on which you to start. And she knew, she knew that that had been a very successfully received plan. I came across as too potentially intimidating. I didn't understand sufficiently. She lacked the capacity and the expertise to do this plan. And she felt too frightened to admit it. As a result, it went badly wrong. So colleagues, we need to model asking for help if we want those we lead to feel confident enough to also ask for help. Bernie Brown says, we asked a thousand leaders, what do team members do that earns trust? The most common answer is ask for help. When it comes to people who do habitually ask for, do not have ask for help, the leaders we polled explained, they wouldn't delegate important work to them because the leaders didn't trust that they would raise their hand and ask for help if they needed it. So if we want our, our, those we delegate to, to ask for help when they need it, we need to model it ourselves. And sometimes I find this diagram helpful. Think about your team. There might be C and D in your team who are absolutely in the middle of the circle of trust. You have total uh, trust in them. You're almost reading each other's minds. It's, it's a brilliant place to be. But B and E, they're okay. There's no lack of trust, but not as close uh, in terms of trust as C and D. But then you might have A. And A is completely outside the circle of trust. There's no trust there. Stra uh, distant uh, and, and um, some issues. My question is, how are you going to move A in? You're going to move A in by blaming them? Are you going to move a, B and C in by, by uh, telling them off? Or are you going to find a way by modelling imperfect leadership and asking for help 
acknowledging your own mistakes to help to bring A and B and E into the middle of the circle of trust. And the final reason why asking for trust is uh, asking for help is such a good idea is if we don't, we may fall over and we may struggle to get back up again. Um, Many heads at the moment are actually struggling enormously. Some of them are falling over. It's not, it's, it's not an easy time for them, and you know this. As leaders, you try to deal with all the pressure and stress from teachers, from parents, from students. You try to juggle things that are out of your control. And asking for help is crucial for our own survival. I like this quote from the old Japanese proverb, fall down seven times, get a bait. We will make mistakes, we'll fall over, we'll get it wrong. But actually asking for help enables us to get back up again. In the interest of our own personal well-being, we need to be able to ask for help from a colleague, from a friend, from a partner, or from a family member. And if we don't, we may fall over. So my set of questions is this, what sometimes prevents us from asking for help internally or externally? How are we using invitational leadership in order to build trust amongst our team? And are we able to recognize the times when for the sake of our own well-being, we need to ask for help? Principle four, be decisive, but be quick to review and if necessary, amend. See, in a crisis, people want strong leadership. They want decisiveness and a clear direction. What they don't want is dither. Sometimes what's important is just to make a decision. But in unprecedented situations, it's possible that we can get this wrong. So on the one hand, we need to be decisive. On the other hand, we need to be open to the fact that that these are best guesses rather than certainty. And we may have made the wrong decision. So to move forward, we ask for advice from experts, from others. We make decisions and then we build in a clear review of those decisions. And if it turns out that the well-intentioned decision we took was the wrong one, we change our mind and do the right thing. If we do get it wrong, we then take responsibility for that and we genuinely apologise. My colleague and uh, my ex-colleague and, f- and friend, David Bell, says, if we made a bad call at the beginning of the crisis or we've misstepped along the way, change course fast. Don't make sorry the hardest word. See, some national and government leaders seem to find it impossible to say, sorry, we got it wrong. And acknowledging responsibility here is key. Saying, I'm sorry that you feel upset about it is not an apology. When it comes to an apology, the most important component is an acknowledgement of responsibility. Say it's your fault that you made a mistake. Now, my concern with some leaders at the moment, certainly in, uh, in England, is that when they've made mistakes, they haven't acknowledged that they made a mistake. I mean, mistakes are going to happen in times of uncertainty, in times of pandemic. Everyone's going to make mistakes. But when you, but some of our leaders here in England have made mistakes and, and not acknowledged it. Worse, they've blamed others for the mistake. We're all imperfect leaders. People will forgive leaders who sometimes make mistakes and admit to them, but they hate a cover-up or a blame culture. So question four, what key leadership decisions have we taken during the pandemic? 
and have we needed to amend or adjust any of those in the light of uh, a changing circumstance? And how good are we at accepting responsibility when things go wrong and then changing tack accordingly? Principle five is deal with the urgent, but build in some space for the strategic and for the future. See, in a time of crisis or uncertainty, the urgent is essential. People need you to lead and to address what's coming at them. But sometimes, especially in the early days of a crisis, the urgent can become compelling and almost attractive. The adrenaline flows. You feel important. You're making a difference. You're responding to immediate needs. You can get caught up in that. But even in a crisis, it's important to set some resource aside to look at the big picture. In a recent blog, Michael Barber tells a story of how in 1940, when London was at war and completely isolated and being bombed every night by the Nazis, and an invasion of Britain was about to happen, and the Nazis had already overrun most of Western Europe, a small group of um, members, officials from the Board of Education, checked into a hotel in Bournemouth and, and started to discuss and design a school system for after the war. And that, uh, that those discussions led to, four years later, the foundation of the 1944 Education Act and the post-war education system. In the middle of the blitz, in the middle of the Second World War, these people were planning for the future. Now, colleagues, COVID-19 is a catastrophe. It is a catastrophe. If you look at the global figures, 24 million children are at risk of not returning to school. 24 million may never come back to school. A third of school age children globally have not been doing any formal learning while their schools have been closed. The loss of the other services that schools provide, in addition to teaching and learning, had a big impact on the mental and physical health of millions of children globally. So this is a catastrophe. But it can also help us to build something back that's better than it was. And I just want to say a few things that I'm hoping for as a result of this pandemic. I'm hoping, as a result of this pandemic, we will have a renewed valuing of schools. See, the key message of the pandemic, and I know this is true in Wales, is the real value of schools. I know schools have never closed. They've been open all the time for children of essential workers and for vulnerable children. But those who can't go to school have really missed it. Um, we miss schools not just for the chance for students to learn through a face-to-face -face curriculum taught, but for all the other things that school life brings. Um, the hugely positive aspects. So um, the value of schools as communities of people has come through very strongly during this pandemic. For many young people, schools provide a, a sense of safety and security that may be lacking elsewhere. A sense of order and expectations that they may not get at home. For some students, it's the only place where they can have a valued and positive relationship with a significant adult. Or maybe the only place where they can spend time with a friend who likes them. Schools help us to explore possibilities, not just in classrooms with teachers, but in all other kinds of social interaction that takes place in and around the school. They connect us with people who are not like us, as well as with people who are like us. So they help young people to, to explore concepts of identity and difference and diversity. We miss schools for the humour, for the interaction, for the sense of belonging, for the sense of place. 
And of course, that applies to staff as well as to young people. So my big hope is that when the pandemic is over in a year's time, in 2022, we'll be valuing schools even more, not just for people, schools helping children to pass tests and exams, but a deeper public recognition of the overall purpose and value of schools in our lives. And I think we can build that better. The second one is stronger links between schools and parents. Because the school leaders I speak to are telling me that as a result of the pandemic, they have stronger links with parents now because they've been communicating with them more directly rather than just going through the young people themselves. And can we build on that to continue those strong relationships once the pandemic is over? The third one is better use of blended learning to augment face-to-face teaching and learning. Uh, Use of technology. Of course, we'll be more face-to-face when the pandemic is over, but we're not going to lose that expertise we developed through uh, how we can use technology to enhance learning. We can blend it better in the future. We've learned that virtual parents evenings work really, really well for lots of parents. They don't have to come in and be uh, physically there. Uh, And even SLT meetings can, can function very well without everyone being in the same room all the time. And actually, you can have some really expert, excellent professional development. Well, that happens to leave your school and because you, you can meet with other people who might be a long way away or get some expert uh, speaker in or, or, or workshop leader in. And you can do that without having to leave your school. So there's all kinds of positives here that we can build on uh, when the pandemic is over. The fourth one is a greater emphasis on collective responsibility and less of an emphasis on top down accountability. Uh, school performance tables have stopped. Uh, for a little while. Estin is is not uh, doing formal inspections at the moment. So will this create a new focus, not on top-down accountability, but on our collective responsibility as educators to do well for children in the community? Not in a complacent or cosy way, but in a robust way, setting out together as a group of schools to parents in the community what we want to achieve, being willing to be held to account by parents in our communities for achieving those things. Not just academic things, but other things that schools value too. So instead of looking upwards to Estin and to the the department, looking outwards to parents in our community and our colleagues to build a sense of collective responsibility rather than top-down accountability. So my question is, at this post-COVID, in, in a year's time, when the, hopefully the pandemic's gone, are we going to have a tsunami of inequity with economic recession leading to widening gaps, a more top-down centralism and narrow accountability measures, more competition between schools and school leaders ground down, exhausted and feeling powerless? This might happen. It might happen. But are we going to choose to lead with humanity and connectedness with our communities? Are we going to celebrate and recognise the richness that schools provide and the amazing role that schools play in society? Are we going to work more collaboratively with our colleagues across our locality so that every child matters and be invitational leaders, welcoming, challenging and asking for help? And are we going to develop more outward focused collective responsibility rather than top-down accountability? These are opportunities to do something even better when the pandemic is over. So what are our hopes and ambitions for our school so that our school doesn't just snap back into the old normal? And what could the new better normal look like 
for our school and for our community if we choose to do the right thing. And the last principle I'm just going to finish with is lead with empathy and authenticity. See, I think the leader who many people have admired the most over the past uh, nine months or so has been Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand. When Jacinda speaks to us, she doesn't speak at us. She speaks with us. She feels like she's standing with us. I think that's a really important skill as a leader. Remember, she announced that um, she and her team and all the public service CEOs would take a 20% pay cut during the pandemic. She was so identifying with what was happening with the New Zealand citizens and the sacrifices they were making, she said, we're going to have a 20% pay cut. Now, this notion of fairness and empathy is such an important one in leadership in terms of crisis. People have a deep-seated view. If you're asking them to do something, to take a risk, to go the extra mile, then you should do that too. That's why there was such an outcry with the Dominic Cummings issue uh, in the UK, when you seem to be saying there's one rule for you and one rule for us. Leadership in times of crisis requires leaders to lead with integrity, with authenticity. It's tough, but our behaviour matters. We want people to trust us, and we need to demonstrate authenticity and integrity. So my last question is, what examples of impressive empathy have we seen during the pandemic from our colleagues? And do I need to review my approach to fairness and how I'm modelling that so that I'm not asking my colleagues to do something that I'm not willing to do myself? So to sum up, we can't learn to lead in the pandemic through an MPQH, through a leadership development programme. There are no maps or models or manuals. What we can do in these uncertain times is accept the fact that we don't know all the answers and show up and walk into the wind, even if we may need some help. Adapt our leadership, be the leader that our new context now requires of us, not the context that required leadership six months ago. Ask for help internally and externally, building trust and collective responsibility and attending to our own well-being as part of that asking for help. Being decisive, but reviewing and admitting mistakes. Sorry is not the hardest word for us as leaders. We deal with the urgent, but we give space for the strategic. We lead with empathy and authenticity because we know that everyone is fighting a hard battle. We stand with them rather than preach at them. So I'm going to stop there. And I'm going to open it up for discussion and I'm going to hand over to Tegwin, who I think is going to handle the uh, the breakout groups or, or someone from NAEL. OK, welcome back, everyone. Um, we've got some good questions coming through on uh, in the chat and through our our WhatsApp group um, that our associates are, are keeping updated. We won't have time for everyone's questions to be answered, unfortunately. So if, if you feel as we're moving on, your question hasn't been answered, please put it in the chat now that we're all back in the main room and we'll try and pick it up in our podcast that will follow today's uh, seminar. So let's get on with the questions so that we can get through as many as possible. We're going to start with Karina, Karina Hansen. Hi, Karina. Hi there. Hi, Steve. Um, we had a really good talk about self-evaluation and accountability 
I'm not going to repeat that conversation, but we were talking about the lessons learned now that we a lot of positive lessons coming from schools. Um, and we wanted to just think about whether the whether government should be focusing on positives, on uh, hope, on future planning. We, it just feels like there's an awful lot of, uh, you know, the crisis and catastrophe around the current situation and whether that focus and the messaging going out to the public and parents should be more on hope and future and it's not a catastrophe for all children because we didn't feel in our group it was. Sure. Um, well, I think I, I wanted to say, I think it is in danger of being a catastrophe for children globally. Um, I think some of the challenges are immense. Uh, I think they're not as bad here in, in the UK as they are in some parts of the world, but I think they are immense challenges. Um, and, um, you know, talking to my UNESCO colleagues and UNICEF colleagues, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty bad in some places. But I think the role of leaders is to, um, is to emphasise the positives uh, and to encourage people to, to kind of uh, cope with the challenges. And, and you know, I would, I would be really surprised if you didn't have a government here in Wales that wanted to focus on that. Um, one of the things that, I, when I was at the National College and when I do my work now, it took me ages to understand how tough it is to be a political leader. It's a really tough job um you know when you're in a school you see your the toughness of your job you don't necessarily see the toughness of being a minister it's a really tough job being a minister you've got all kinds of pressures coming at you you've got all you've got all kinds of different interest groups and it's actually it's an ecosystem that you're working in so if you make a decision to do something here it'll have a knock-on effect somewhere else so so the best you can do as a government is set the tone create the broad um, culture to enable the middle tier and the teachers to, to make a difference. And I would hope that um, the leaders at the moment, I know Kirsty's going to be retiring when the whenever the election is now going to happen, but I would be hoping that the leaders here would be talking up the positives of this. Uh, and, and actually, one, one interesting thing, and I know it's going to come up later, when children came back the first time from lockdown, um, people were expecting it to be worse than it was. Um, children were keen to learn. Uh, they, they got back into the routines quite quickly. And um, so I think we have to emphasize the positive. And it is one of the jobs of, of leaders to do that. In fact, in my summing up at the end, I'm going to talk a bit more about this, about the need to have some, some pragmatic optimism. And I'm hoping that that's what's going to happen here in Wales, both at regional level and uh, at, at the ministry. But of course, you're going to have a change in—I mean, a change in uh, leadership at the top of the in the department uh, with Steve Davis and Kirsty leaving. Um, but I hope so. Uh, but I wouldn't wait around for that to happen. I'd be talking positively as middle leaders in your system about trying to create the culture in a positive way rather than waiting for it to happen to you from outside. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Karina. Michelle, Michelle, are you still there, Michelle, from Pembroke? Yep, I'm still here. Great. Hi, Michelle. Um, Michelle, hi. hi. Hi, Steve. First of all, thank you for a very inspiring presentation this morning. Really enjoyed it. 
Um, our group talked about um, your comment about the uh, pausing on the top-down accountability from Estin and the local authorities. And we recognise that it's allowed us to grow um, without these um, e external norms. And we've built strong relationships up um, with our, within our cluster and with the local authority and wider. How as a nation can we ensure this different mindset continues going forward? Well, I, I don't, don't wait around for, uh, you know, for everyone else to catch up. I would say make it happen. You know, work within your, your sphere of control. Uh, you know, if, if you can make something work effectively uh, by, you know, doing it, by having that um, collective dialogue with colleagues, by agreeing together, you know, putting on, you know, putting on your websites, putting on, making it clear exactly what, as a group, you're trying to achieve. Not top down, but lateral. You know, we collectively are going to try and achieve this for our children. It's what we believe in. It's what we, and we'd be expected to be held to account for that. And sharing that with the local authorities, sharing that with the region, sharing that with the, with the, with the ministry, but taking responsibility and being proactive, that's far better than saying, well, I hope, I hope that the local authority is going to change or I hope that the region is going to change or the, the ministry is going to change. So I would say seize the moment. It's a great opportunity. The, the only problem is that you've got so many other things to deal with as well. And uh, so it's, it's, it's hard to find the time. But I would say this is the time in this gap to demonstrate that schools can take collective responsibility for improving the, the outcome for children, not just in, in the tests, but more broadly, and, and doing it laterally rather than upwards. So sphere of control, sphere of influence, uh, Michelle, is what I'd say. Thanks. Thanks for that, Michelle. Uh, next is uh, Rebecca Turner, Steve. Hi. Hi, Rebecca. I just I said, I read your book in my deck chair in the summer. All right, okay. <laughs> Help me through. Good. Yeah, um, we, we had quite a discussion about uh, the roller coaster ride of emotions that we've all been on, both personally and with our staff. Um, and that it seems to be waves of, of emotion amongst everybody. You know, we, we, we were badly hit with our staff at the very beginning of the, of the, of the uh, pandemic with illness. Um, you know, we, a few of us have lost family members along the line. And as a leader, you tend to try and hold it all together and try and be very strong and like you're saying walking in the wind and, and, and being the one at the front all the time but I think we, we had a discussion about where we as leaders need to or how do we really look after ourselves in the long term because it, it, we're going to have to recognise that this has been a, a big chunk of our lives uh, that's had a huge effect on us emotionally how do we take stock and look yeah. after ourselves so we carry on? You know, I'd like to think I could keep on being ahead for a few more years before I retire. <laughs> I, I, I think it's a great question, Rebecca. And I, I know loads of people I speak to are, are, are feeling this. So I, I make a few observations. First of all, uh, you know, when I was a director of education in Nosley, I got myself, there was a moment when I got myself so exhausted Doing, so stressed dealing with the crisis I was dealing with that I, I made myself pretty ill. Uh, and um, I was in director of education. I was in charge of the schools, but I had a boss who was the chief executive of the whole council. And he sent me home. He said, I'm instructing you to go home for two days and sleep. Uh, um, 
And I, I, I wouldn't have done that, except I was told to. So the issue is, who does that for head teachers? Because, uh, you know, your chair of governors isn't likely to do that. So who is going to look after and say, actually, you need some time off. You need to get some sleep. Who, who, is, who is the person? Who are the people who are going to, to do that? Uh, and I would say, um, hopefully, you have colleagues or you have um, uh, connections with a regional or local authority who would do that. But it's important. That's the first thing. Someone needs to be saying, we can see you're struggling. Time to take some time off. Because we all, that happened to all of us at different points. The second thing I'd say is the first step to doing this, and I hinted at this in my speech, is asking for help. Um, acknowledging that actually you are struggling uh, and asking for help. Uh, and if you're willing to do that, you'll find that people will step up. Uh, and it's not just um, colleagues in your school, um, but also um, f- friends, family members, uh, other other heads to help so I think that's that's really important and and thirdly I think you'll find that when you do acknowledge that you're struggling uh people won't say oh you're weak you're you're um you know you're not the kind of head teacher I want they'll actually say you know we understand you know build trust rather than have the opposite impact and of course if you if you're willing to say I'm struggling for the moment I need to uh ease off a bit um, have the weekend off, uh, catch up on my sleep. Um, can you do this? Can you step up for a little while? Um, they'll feel okay later on and doing the same back when they're struggling. So I think I think it's about being honest. I think it's about um, not trying to be brave and saying that uh, you know we're, we're all in hum- all you know su- superhuman beings and we don't struggle. Uh, an authenticity here about being vulnerable. Uh, what I worry about is people who are um, just, they choose to walk into the wind, okay, they show up, okay, but they just get more and more tired, more and more stressed, and don't ask for help. And they think it's a sign of weakness if they do. So I would say, please, be honest, ask for help internally, and ask for help externally. And if you and look out for your colleagues. If you see a colleague head teacher, you think, give them a call, you know, say, is there anything I can do? I was talking to a head teacher yesterday, she said she, she'd asked for help from a colleague because she was really going under. And uh, a colleague said, I'll come and run your school for two days. And you can, you have, uh, you have some time off because, uh, and so helping each other, I think it's, it's going to be important in this time. Okay. One more thing, sorry. I talked earlier about providing time for strategic thinking when you're under such pressure. Can I pick this up? Because... The example I use of the people in Bournemouth planning for the uh, for the 1944 Education Act in the middle of the Blitz, it wasn't the cabinet who were doing it. It was it was a small team. So when you when you think about planning for the big picture for the future, don't think it has to be you all the time. You might be too busy trying to do this, but try and find one or two people within your team or within your group of schools who can do some strategic thinking but don't expect everyone to be able to do it because you're managing a, you're managing urgent big crisis stuff so so don't think it all has to be done by you find other people who can help to do some of the big picture thinking that helps to reduce the stress thank you very much thank thanks you. rebecca and and steve building you know you've, you've got an opportunity to build a little more on that last point you were making with i think Catherine thomas's next question 
Hi, Steve. Um, again, like the others, thanks for this morning. In our group, we certainly felt that um, your presentation was really refreshing, sort of the feet on the ground, and really had um, gave us a lot of food for thought, and it dealt with things that were lots of head teachers are actually dealing with. And my question, well, our group's question then follows really neatly after the last question, um, and it's around really how can we um, build in some space for the strategic planning um, for the future, especially in Wales when head teachers are dealing with the pandem pandemic as we all are, but also dealing with the forthcoming new curriculum. Um, and it's, you know, around dealing, um, making space for the strategic planning when dealing with the urgent seems just never ending for head teachers. Yeah, it's, 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 it's very, very hard. And I, I suppose I have to almost re repeat what I was saying. I think the people who are having this at the, the, the toughest are head teachers in um, relatively small schools. I think they're, because there's, there's no one else. Um, I think, I think it's, uh, if you're ahead of a, of a, a small or average size school, it's just coming at you all the time, and it's hard to delegate. If you go to a bigger school, there's, there's more flexibility. Uh, and if you're a teacher, it's tough, but not as tough as if you're the head. I think the heads are the ones who are really dealing with it. Uh, things that are out of their control, new requirements, new health and safety issues, new testing issues. It's just, and I understand that. And so don't beat yourself up. You know, you're dealing with a crisis. You're dealing with unprecedented situation uh, and be realistic about what you can achieve so and and don't think that, that in terms of the strategic thinking it has to be you uh it could be someone else uh as i said the, those people from bournemouth it, it wasn't the prime minister who was there it was just it was just a small number of people who you managed to create some space for to do some thinking and report back so it's a way in which across a group of schools you might be able to find a small number of people who could do find some space to do some some thinking and some work and then report back to the bigger group rather than thinking every head teacher trying to manage this crisis also has to build in big time for strategic planning because it's not realistic at the moment so don't beat yourself up but try and find a small number who might be able to create some space is what my best advice thanks Catherine. um sarah sarah hi steve um, you recognise the need for school leaders to change their leadership style yeah. and continually alter them to the context yeah. that we face on a daily basis. The question from our group was, do you think the consortium Estin are going to adopt the same philosophy and change their leadership style to the contexts? But do you think that they really understand the context that we're in? OK, I can't answer that question. Um I think it's easy to it's easy to um, uh, to sort of criticise. I think you know they have their own challenges, they have their own um, pressures, um, and I think one of the key roles in making a whole system work is is um, is walking in their shoes for a little while. Um, so how, you know, trying to understand the pressures that a regional director will be under, trying to understand the pressure that a local authority director will be under, trying to understand what it's like to try to be the minister or the director of education in the ministry, and for them to try and understand what it's like to be a teacher. Um, and I think the way forward for any system in dealing with a crisis and certainly a pandemic is spending a time in each other's shoes and trying to understand that. So I would say 
it's 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 as important for you as a head to understand what it might be like to be a regional director as if a regional director to understand what it might be like to be a head teacher. And the more that can happen, the more you'll have a whole system working in in an aligned way rather than a, in a, a conflicting way. Uh, and so uh, there's, uh, there's a new book out by Michael Fuller and Mary, Mary Jean Gallagher, which I'm sure Michael will talk about when he when he comes when he comes uh, to speak to you. And it says, you, understanding the role of the other players in the system is the key to getting it right. So it's absolutely essential that the regional and the local authority understand what heads are going through. But it's also important the heads understand what what local authorities and, and regional people are, are, are trying to wrestle with too. And the more we can do that, the more likely it is we'll have an aligned system. Thanks, Sarah. Rian Milton has a question for you, Steve. Hi, Steve. Hiya. Um, yeah, I thought, hi, I, I really, really liked what you said about um, MPQH not preparing you for this experience. Um, and I'm relatively new to the job, but um, what what did help me prepare for my MPQH was your book, actually. Um, uh-huh. So thanks for that. <laughs> thanks for that. It, it inspired me. Our group and, and building on from what you said about positivity about this experience, um, we talked about the role of coaching and mentoring in this time. Um, and how actually a lot of positivity has gone on in terms of the offer of coaching for us as leaders. Um, and an external coach has been a massive part of that. But also, I suppose the questions we were formulating were around how can we build on that now going back into our system? How can we build it into our inspection processes, but also kind of that role of supervision um, we talked about and how our improvement partners and challenge advisors can play that role potentially. What kind of steps would you take to going towards that system? I just want to clarify a bit more. Are you saying that um, you valued you valued coaching, uh, and you uh, are you asking whether the, um, the the challenge partners or the school improvement advisors that work in the region can can perform the same function as a as a coach? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, so so some of our experiences have been that, you know, there's been a change that uh, our conversations with Estin and with Improvement Partners and Challenge have been a lot more coaching um, and, and supporting and guiding. And that maybe wasn't happening before. So we're saying that go, going forward, if we're going to learn from this system, how can we build on that? OK, great. So I've had the privilege of working with two other regions in the past uh, 18 months or so. Um, helping them to shift their culture. They're, they're trying to shift their culture towards more of a, of a coaching and support role with schools rather than the tick off, uh, you've done that, you've done that, you've done that, you haven't done that, you haven't done that, you haven't done that. And I'm really quite impressed by the distance that I'm seeing them travel in that towards that culture. So I think it's a great opportunity to, um, to, to, to further enhance that through having that coaching relationship. Now, when you are in charge of um, when you're an external person doing school improvement support, and I'm talking about all over the world, I'm not just talking about Wales, you're, you're having to wear two hats. You've got someone behind you saying, uh, make sure you challenge them about that. Make sure you check that they're doing that. Uh, uh, the compliance stuff that you're kind of legally required to check out. And at the same time, you're trying to um, coach and support and develop. And you're trying to develop trust between you and the head teacher. And and sometimes that head teacher doesn't trust you because they think that if they're honest with you, 
uh, you'll you'll come you'll go and report them, uh, and you'll end up they'll end up getting pain. And it, it, it's a quite it's a very skilled job to be in the in that middle system where you're a school improvement um, person. But I, I think more and more there's a there's a deeper understanding that if you're going to improve a system, it's got to be more about coaching and less about monitoring. Uh, and uh, there are other ways you can you can monitor without without uh, destroying that that relationship that, between a, a, an improvement advisor and a head teacher. So hopefully we'll see that more and more, especially at the moment when the kind of performance tables are, are not around and, and we haven't got as much top-down accountability. So I'm, I'm optimistic. I think you've got, you've got grounds for uh, positivity here. And I, I see less of that in some other systems. In some other systems, I see it's still tick box but I'm seeing more of that, uh, that support and coaching and empathy uh, in, in the two regions I'm working with in Wales anyway. Thanks. Thanks, uh, Rian. Um, Steve, we, we talked uh, while the breakout rooms were underway about the, the mentoring. You talked about having four mentors and both you and, and Mick, who's joined us today, felt it was worth exploring that a little more. So just in our last few minutes, um, I wonder if you could just think and talk to us more about that. Why would we think? Why would we, why would we think that we're so expert at what we do as leaders that we don't need any help? Why would you think that? And it's a crazy thing to think. So why would anyone think they could be a leader without having mentors? Uh, so let's admit it. Let's embrace it. Let's say it's a great thing to get help. It's not an admission of weakness. It's an admission of the fact that we're self-aware and we're probably more likely to be good leaders if we ask for help than bad leaders. So I think every leader, every leader in whatever kind of role they're in should have some kind of mentoring. Um, And you should be in charge of that. You shouldn't have it done to you. You should choose based on the job that you're doing and the things you think you, you need to be better at. So it involves some self-awareness. So when I told you about the four mentors I had on it at the National College, um, but I changed that uh, towards the end of my time. I still had mentors, I just changed one or two of them because I needed I had different needs, but I still had those mentors. And when I went to my next job, which was an international job, I got some other mentors because uh, there were other areas that I needed to learn and improve on. And I, and I worry that we tell ourselves we don't need it because we're good enough. You know, but we can always improve as learners. We can always improve as leaders. So uh, get yourself some mentors and you'll be surprised that people like to be asked. And, and the reason I had four is because I had uh, in, in all my jobs is because I had so many things I could learn from. Uh, and uh, actually, if you have four, say you meet your mentor three times a year. Instead of having three meetings a year, you have 12 meetings a year. That's even more help. So uh, so please, please, please ask for help. It's not a weakness. It's a strength. You'll be a better leader. You'll make better decisions. You'll be more, you'll, as a result, you'll, you'll, be more, you'll, you'll be more authentic and you're more likely to, to do the right thing. Please do it. Damien, thank you. Thanks, Steve, and, and thanks everyone for the for the questions uh, in your groups and in the chat. Um, it, it's you know it's helped make what was already an excellent session even better. So, so yeah, I just just invite you now, Steve, if I may, to to sum up for 
the last 10 minutes for colleagues. Okay, I want to, um, if you don't mind, I want to talk a bit about pragmatic optimism in times of crisis. It has been touched on in the questioning, but um, give, me a, give me a chance to talk about this final principle. Many years ago, I visited a secondary school in the south of England, and the building, the school building, was really grotty, to be honest. But the head, I was so impressed with, she was so optimistic. She said, um, the staff here are fantastic. The building's not much, but the staff are fantastic. She said, it's a bit like Lewis Hamilton driving a Ford Fiesta. And I loved that. But when I talked to a leadership team later, when the head had disappeared, they said to me, our head teacher is our storyteller. She tells us the story of how things are going to get better. Because it's challenging here. We have some tough times. But she's our storyteller. And I like this idea of the leader as a storyteller who elicits hope, providing encouragement and positivity and tells a narrative that's compelling about the future. But I'm not talking here about blind optimism. I, I, what I'm not talking about is over-promising and under-delivering. Frankly, we've had enough of that over the past nine months from some of our politicians. That leads to distrust and to despair. I'm talking about pragmatic optimism as leaders. Now, many of you will have read Stephen Covey's book, Good to Great, and in it he talks about the Stockdale paradox. During the Vietnam War, Stockdale was held as a prisoner, um, and he served as a prisoner for seven years, and he was tortured. But he survived. He was one of the very few to survive that torture and that imprisonment. He was asked later why he managed to survive when so many others didn't. He said that his answer was that neither the optimists nor the pessimists lasted long. The optimists kept thinking they'd be out by Christmas or out by Easter. When that didn't happen, they lost hope and gave up. And the pessimists thought they were going to die anyway, so they gave up pretty early. He found the way to stay alive was to embrace the harshness of his situation, but to do so with a balance of healthy optimism. He described it as a paradox. You must never confuse faith that you'll prevail in the end, which you can't afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever that might be. I think this is where we are now with schools, actually, and now in society. Optimism is a fundamentally good attitude to have. Tell the story of how we're going to get through this and come out the other side. To be positive with those around us who might be troubled and doubting and, and, and struggling. But we also need to confront the brutal facts. This is not a quick few weeks and then it's going to be back to normal. We need to be honest about the reality of what we're dealing with. We need to plan rigorously. And in these certain uncertain times, we need just to, not just to have plan A, we might need to have plan B and plan C as well. We need to manage the risk. We need to stay focused on what really matters. We need to understand where we are on the journey in leading this through, through our organisation through this. When I was um, a child in year 10 at school, the equivalent, when I was um, 15 years old, I was bottom I was fifth bottom of the bottom set in French. We had five sets, and I was fifth bottom of the bottom set a year before my O-levels. That's a bad place to be. And uh, before my father died, he gave me a copy of my old school reports, and he asked me, he, he gave them to me, 
and I wanted to look up what my French teacher had written about me when I was fifth bottom of the bottom set. And I looked it up, and I promise you this is true, my French teacher had only written one word on my report. Cheerful. Now, when, you, when you're fifth bottom of the bottom set, cheerful is a good thing, but it's not sufficient. I actually needed to get my finger out and do some hard work uh, and improve. And I managed to do that, and I managed to scrape my French O-level. So part of our role is not to be blindly optimistic. It's to prepare our colleagues for tough times, to be honest about the bad news and about the challenges ahead. Some leaders give out messages of tough times and problems as if it's all about them. What a tough time they're having, as if that's a good way to lead. That's not a good way to lead. No wonder their staff feel ground down and unhappy. But others can be over-optimistic and, and hide away from problems until it's too late. As leaders in this pandemic, I think we need to confront the brutal facts. There are significant challenges in online learning and homeschooling. Many families are struggling with this. There are mental health challenges of isolation and indeed increased risk of abuse in some families during lockdown. There are the stresses that your staff and colleagues will be under as they try to manage their way through this. Many of them try to teach face-to-face -face and do online learning at the same time. And of course, there's concern about loved ones who may get seriously ill uh, and get, get the disease. So we need to be pragmatic and honest about the challenges. But we also need to be optimistic. That's our job. I remember going to a, a concert to see one of my heroes, singer-songwriter Eric Cohen, many years ago now. And this is what he said. He said, I spent much of my life studying the great philosophies, but cheerfulness kept breaking through. I like that such a lot. Um, in times of crisis and uncertainty, we need to let cheerfulness break through as well. That's our job as leaders. I'll just tell you one story uh, as, I, as I kind of wrap up here. When I went to Nosley as Director of Education many years ago, we had the second worst GCSE results in the whole country. After a year of my leadership, we had the worst GCSE results in the whole country. And this was a dark night of the soul moment for me. And I wondered whether I was up to it, whether I should just resign. I went live on Radio Merseyside the morning of the results and the broadcaster said to me, with respect, she said, with respect, just give up, it's hopeless. And the Daily Mail ran me up uh, and, and said, we're doing a story about the worst local authority in the country, would you do an interview? And the Liverpool Echo had a letter in it calling for my resignation because I was brought, I'd brought disgrace upon the borough of Nosley. So it was a tough time for me. And I had a mentor who helped me to see, rather than resign, I was doing the right things, I just needed more time. So I remember I got all the head teachers together, that I remember this very, very well. And I said to them, we're having a tough time. But in three years time, people will be coming from all over the country to find out how we've been so successful. Put it in your diaries, it's going to happen. So, Because uh, uh, one of my roles at that point was to demonstrate optimistic leadership, help people to see a better future uh, and, and then be realistic and pragmatic about trying to do that. Uh, and I, when I was working in Africa in my last job, uh, really interesting and challenging work in Africa, I came across the name of this school. If I can just find it now. Soon Big Brain Academy. 
I thought it was such a great name for a school. It's in Nairobi, by the way. So come to our school. You have a big brain. That's about optimistic leadership. I, I just like that concept. So, so just to want to sum up, it's, it, it, I've loved the questions. I'm, a, I'm admiring what you're trying to achieve. I'm a big supporter of the National Academy for Education Leadership and the work that it's doing. And I really like the fact that you're trying to wrestle with some of the issues about being strategic as well as dealing with the crisis and, and lateral accountability, not just top-down accountability and adjusting your leadership in the light of the context that you're facing. So I just want to say this then, none of us were taught how to lead in the pandemic. It's not on the MPQH. What we can do is to show up with optimism and resilience and some cheerfulness to confront the brutal facts of our reality, to reach out and ask for help from colleagues, from people within our organization and from outside our organization. And most of all, to be authentic and to do the right thing and be true to our values. Now it's possible to have success, success and think that you're a perfect leader. But in my view, if we want to be effective as leaders, we need to be imperfect leaders. If we want sustainable, well-led schools, if we want long-term and effective education systems, if we want to attract the next generation into leadership, ditch all the striving towards perfection, focus on doing the right thing for students, genuinely ask for help from others, and celebrate the fact that we are imperfect leaders. Gobeithio'n eich bod wedi mwyn hair bennod hon o bodlediad yr Academy Arwynyddiaeth. Tan ysgrifiwch ar Spotify, podlediadau Apple neu Google a pheidiwch byth â cholli penod. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leadership Academy podcast. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts and never miss an episode.